0: The text that J- Damon just read um, is the text of this morning's message. For those who are, who are just joining us, either online or um, this morning, we're going through Romans chapter 8, and we're in verses 26 through 30, an amazing um, section of verses. So if you would, just bow in prayer with me. Let's ask the Lord to, to help us. Father, we pray that you are Holy Spirit, um, the Spirit of power, the same Spirit that hovered over the waters, and when you said that your word said, let there be light, creation began. We pray for that same power of your spirit to work this morning through your word, not just in an instructive way, but in a transformative way, that you would speak to us in power, that we would be encouraged, we would find a greater confidence, that you would increase our faith, increase our love and our passion for the gospel and for Jesus Christ and his return I pray, Lord, that you would just help me to do what you've called me to do, and that is to speak and to preach and to teach with humility and also truth. Um, Inform and feed my family here who's gathered in your name, again, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, uh, the neighborhood that I... um, my, my, my two boys grew up in, and it's the same neighborhood in which, which, which I live now, um, they really didn't have anybody to play with. There were just a couple of girls, and um, that's cool maybe when you're a teenager, you know, having girls in the neighborhood, but that's fraught with all kinds of problems, as you know, um, but they just didn't have any boys to play with, so, and of course, there's an age gap of like nine years between my oldest and my youngest. And that's so different than like how I grew up in the context that I grew up out in the country. Um, I counted yesterday that I I grew up with like 13 boys. There were a couple girls scattered in there, but 13 boys. And some of us were a little bit older, some a little bit younger. Um, Some of us were closer than others. But let me just tell you, um, that group of boys, some of us, we wreaked havoc on our little country road of Gilardi. Um, there were rumors that we accidentally started a fire in a pasture of one of my friends, one of the 13, but charges were never filed. And I can neither confirm nor deny that that rumor was true. But anybody from my hometown is going to know what I'm talking about if they happen to be, um, listening. Well, it was a lot of fun growing up in that, that, that context. And one of the guys, one of the 13 was this guy named Mark. He came into our lives, I think about eighth grade, um, dark curly hair, a little bit heavy set. And, uh, uh, he was a bit of a handful. Um, he was a little, I don't know, outside the box, uh, perhaps, because our neighbors were in the process of adopting him. So he was living with my neighbors, my direct neighbors, and um, they were going through the legal process of adoption. Like I said, Mark was a bit of a handful. Well, at one point in our life on Gillardy Road, Mark was gone. And I didn't understand why. I was like, what happened to Mark? And the friend who was part of the family that was adopting him said, well, my mom and dad decided they weren't going to finish the adoption process. So Mark was there one day as part of the gang, and then Mark was gone because they stopped the adoption process. That's a real story. That's a true story that happened in my neighborhood. And I've never forgotten that um, you know, I was a bit of a handful, too. My parents would probably say a lot of a handful, but, like, I knew that my parents couldn't throw me back like a fish, right? I wasn't in an adoptive process, but Mark was. And I thought about him, and I wondered, you know, what did it feel like to get so close to belonging to a family with all the rights that come with adoption, and to be so close and then have it cut off? Like, what kind of abandonment issues? I mean, you already had some, Um, because he was put up for adoption, and then to be put back into the system. What kind of possible insecurities he would feel. The reason I bring that up is because we are in an adoption process. God, our Father, is adopting us with all the legal rights pertaining thereto. And in some sense, Romans chapter 8 tells us that we are already adopted in another sense, it tells us we have yet to be adopted. So we're somewhere in between. So, for example, back in verses 15 and 16, we read, You have received, it's past tense already happened, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's, we're, we're adopted. And if children, that is adopted children legally, then heirs as the legal language. So in one sense, we already are. But in verse 23, we read that we're waiting for adoption to be completed. Like we're in the process, we're in between. So verse 23 says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Wait for what? Wait for something that you don't have yet. We wait For the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that is the resurrection, completes the process. So here's the question, and I want you to think about your own life um, and your own insecurities when it comes to your relationship with God. Um, If you're too much of a handful for God, you stumble, you struggle with failure, you give in too much to your anger, lust, Desire for power or praise. If you're too much of a handful, is God going to reverse the process? If life becomes too hard, the Christian life becomes too hard, and I'm assuming, of course, that a person is a real believer, that you're a real believer. Is God going to say, you know what, I've had enough. (laughs) Lost your temper one too many times. Cut the cord. Nope. Out of the family. Back into the system. I think most of us would say, no, God doesn't do that. But I wonder how many of us in our existence, if we're to be honest with ourselves, constantly doubt that God is going to see me through. He's going to hold on to me. That his love is big enough to accommodate the fact that much of life we live stumbling around. It's not an excuse to stumble around, but that's just life in this world. You know, you're doing great one morning, reading your Bible, reading a psalm. You feel like your heart is up in the clouds, rejoicing in the Lord. Your dog loses his ball under the couch, and next thing you know, you want to cuss. That's happened. Not really the cussing part, but my dog tends to lose his ball under the couch when I'm trying to have a time of reading, and then it just whines at me the whole time like, can't you just not let the ball go under the couch? I don't think that the Lord... So the question is... How are you in terms of your feeling a sense of security and assurance that God's got you? That's a real question, a real struggle for a lot of Christians is, is, does God really is going to see me through all of this? And I believe that God would would want his children to to be secure. Just like I want my my children to live in the security of my love. I don't want them to question that I'm going to banish them from my life. I don't think the Lord would want that for his his sons and daughters. Now, there is a place for self-examination. You know, if you're living a hard-hearted, rebellious, high-handed, Lord, I don't care what you say, I'm going to live however I want to live, but I'm still going to call myself a Christian. Well, then you probably should examine to see if you're of the faith because your fruits aren't in accordance with your roots. Well, this theme of assurance is a major theme in this 8th chapter of uh, Romans. In fact, if I was to give it a title, I'd just call it the assurance chapter. And it gets really thick beginning in verses, verses 26 to the end of the chapter. And he's going to lay out for us, Paul is, reasons for assurance. And he's going to end with this climactic note of, this is the very end of the chapter, nothing can separate me from the love of God or separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So it's about this assurance and I, I, I pray and hope that as a result of us coming to the word, that the spirit of God would speak through this word to your heart to let you know, I'm not going to let you go. That's a, that's, that's a word that I think all of us need to hear a lot. So, reason number one, assurance. Reason number one, the power of God. And by the power of God, what I mean by this is the spirit that is, God's Spirit assists us and intercedes for us on the journey. So, verse 26. Likewise, and I think the likewise points to the hope that we talked about last week. Hope sustains us, but here is the Spirit. It says, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit prays, or himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, the first part there, it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That is, one of the marks of a Christian is that we recognize uh, that we are, in fact, weak. David understood, I am poor and needy, and a true mark of a Christian is to be poor in spirit. You understand you need help. And he says here that the Spirit assists or helps us. And the word that's translated, helps, literally, is join in the effort. Like, comes alongside and joins in the effort to help you along. That's, and I think this is a, a generalization. It reminds me of times in which I have found myself completely powerless. One of those times, first date with my wife, if I told you the story, I'm sorry. But it always gets better. First date, Newport Beach, I'm driving my old truck, some things never change. It had a problem starting after you warmed it up right? So if you killed it, it would just nothing. Newport Beach, Saturday night, packed with traffic. I'm on the main drag getting ready to turn left at a a stoplight, waiting for it to turn green. It turns green. I let the clutch out too fast. It jumps, dies, but it gives me enough momentum to actually make it into the middle of the intersection. This is, for me, this is a panic moment, some people like, have nightmares about you know uh, standing in front of a crowd naked in the public or something like that. For me, it's stalling in the middle of an intersection. I was so panicked. First date, by the way. She's still my wife. Saw something other than my, my truck and my, my ability to let a clutch out smoothly. By the time, oh was a panic moment, and um, I opened the door, tried to jump out, but my lap belt is still on. So I'm flailing out the side of the car. You know, by the time I pull myself back in, and this is, like like I said, an old car, um, weighed 5,000 pounds, truck. So I finally get it undone. I pop out. I'm in the middle of the intersection. By this time, the light that was green that I tried to go through and turn left is now red, and the other lights are green. So I'm out, and by this time, whatever little um, momentum that I had, you know, from letting the clutch out too fast, it was gone. So I'm dead stick like right in the middle of the intersection. I'm pushing for all of my might, and I couldn't push it an inch. And then there were three merciful guys riding in the back of another pickup truck. Back then, you could ride in the back of a pickup truck, and it was legal. They jumped out, came over, grabbed hold of the back of the tailgate, and pushed, and pushed me off to the side. Right? I was so thankful. Panic moment averted. But I needed help. Finished the story. I did get it started. Had a great date, and the rest is history. But... There are times when, and I say many times, when you feel like your Christian life is stalled for different reasons. Sometimes people stall out because they grieve so deeply over a loss and they wonder, am I ever going to get through this? The Spirit comes along your life and pushes on the tailgate to move you forward. Sometimes it's slow, but He's moving you forward. Sometimes you wonder, how am I going to make it through this difficult, depressing season like 2020? Well, guess what? Someone's going to push on the tailgate, and he is right now, pushing. He's joining in the effort. He is assisting. He's helping us. That's, that gives us assurance that we are going to make it because the Spirit is in us, and he's working. He's pushing the tailgate. Not only that, but more specifically... It says the Spirit prays for us two times. It mentions intercession, which means the Spirit of the living God advocates for you to the Father. Now, this is one of the glorious wonders of the Trinity. God the Spirit is advocating, interceding to God the Father on your behalf, telling God the Father, this guy needs some help. And then the Spirit actually is the answer to the Father's, uh, to, to the Spirit's request, giving you the strength and the power and the help and the assistance to move forward. He prays for you. And the sense in here is that we don't always know what we're supposed to pray for, right? The Spirit does, and the Spirit also is the one who intercedes on behalf of the saints according to the will of God. That is, the Spirit actually knows what you should do. Now, sometimes, you know, um, we know what we're supposed to do. We have commands in Scripture. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, love your wife. You're supposed to forgive each other. Those are all things that we know to be true, and we can pray for those things, there are other times in which we don't know what to pray. I mean, this is pretty amazing that the Apostle Paul, the great mighty Apostle Paul, would acknowledge. He says, we. There's times when he didn't know which way to go. Rome or Macedonia. There's times, Philippians chapter 1, he doesn't, you get the sense when you read it, he doesn't know if he's going to be let out of prison or he's going to die. He doesn't know. In other words, there wasn't always some word of knowledge or some prophetic word. He was left with, I don't know. And and, and in that way, he's like many of us. You know, you're, you're facing a disease, and you're like, All right, Lord, do I pray for deliverance out of it? Or do I pray for strength to endure it? We don't always know. That's true when praying for people, don't always know if a person is supposed to recover. We're laying on of hands. Didn't we receive a prophetic word, word of knowledge? Lord, are, are we going to pray for you to take this sweet lady home? Or are we going to pray for you to revive her? And you might choose one or the other or both. But what's really awesome is you have God himself praying his will, groaning at the same time. Which means he enters into our experience praying the will of God for your life. So even when you get it wrong, he gets it right. You see that? So this this is one of those great assurance truths. The spirit is pushing on the tailgate and he's praying for you. So however stuck you might feel or stalled, you got to know, God, you got this. You're going to get me through this. You've entered in. You're right alongside me. So that's truth number one, God's power. Truth number two, God's providence. The belief that God uniquely and universally governs all things. In the Christian, or should I say biblical, view of things, there are no accidents. Now that is troubling troubling along some lines, but it's very comforting along others. And it is a truth that is found repeatedly in the scripture. So one of the most comforting and troublesome, at the same time, uh, quoted verses of the Bible, Romans 8, 28. God's power, God's spirit, this is point two, assists us and, oh, excuse me, I didn't move it. God's providence, God works all things for the eternal good of his people. This is Romans 8, 28. And we know, now, just a couple of verses ago, he says we, sometimes we don't know what to pray for, like we just don't have knowledge of this. In verse 28, he assumes that we know this to be true. This is what we can know with confidence. That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Not some things, a few things, or a percentage of things. But all things. This is one of those times in scripture when all means all. Everything. Successes. Achievements. Trials. Adversities. Successes, gains, losses, mistakes, choices, viruses, elections. There's one. Leaders, times, seasons, mistakes, and sin itself. Now, this truth of God's providence at work in all things is never to be used as an excuse to just do whatever you want. It's a way of understanding how God is good despite evil and despite bad choices. All things means all things. And you'll notice that it says here that that God works all things together. He could have left that word out. He could have just said, all things work for our good. He doesn't say that. He says all things work together as if it's divinely orchestrated, like it's in concert. And I think that's exactly how we're supposed to read it. God is orchestrating all things together. Imagine, God has orchestrated all the events of your life for the greatest possible outcome. That is for the believer, for the one who loves God and is called according to his purpose. We love God because he called us to life. And every Christian who has the spirit of God in you, there is a love for God. It may not be as strong as you wish it to be, But there is a love for God. So this applies to the Christian in a way that does not apply to the unbeliever. All things, imagine everything, working together in concert for your and my and our eternal good. The hardest part, of course, of that is like, so God allowed evil for a good purpose. Yeah, yeah, he did. And you know, the, the, the classic, most important paradigm where that worked itself out is the cross of Jesus. There wasn't a greater crime in all of history than to falsely condemn and execute the only innocent man to ever live. That was an abortion of justice. And yet, through that abortion of justice, God won the war. That's the paradigm for life. That is a a, a staggering truth for the Christian. It was never meant to give license. For sin, it was never meant to make God a puppeteer because that's not how it works or take away human responsibility and the choice. But it was to say, listen, all the things that happen in your life are for a purpose. Now that is a, like I said, that is a, that is a tremendous truth, especially when applied to your, applied to your present uh, experience and also your past. So interesting experience. A couple weeks ago, I went to a seminar um, it was connected to uh, chaplaincy, so the seminar giver was a, psychi- a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, psychiatrist, and um, there were other people in the room, and mostly non-believers, and he was talking about how to deal with guilt and, and failure, right, to this class, and I'm just uh, an attendee, and uh, what was interesting to me on reflection, and I couldn't talk about it in the class. I just I reflected on it. I came home and talked to my wife about it. I Said, "You know, the sad thing is, the way that, and he is not a believer, secular psychologist that comes at th- things from a Darwinian viewpoint. The best he could offer, the people in this room, were coping mechanisms and management of failure and guilt. Coping mechanisms." So that you don't go farther down the rabbit hole of alcoholism or self-destruction. Coping mechanisms and ways to manage your life. Now, there's a place for coping mechanisms, I suppose. But my heart groaned. Because, and in, in, in the middle of the class, he, he knew I was the chaplain. He says, so, so how do you deal with failure and guilt? And I was thinking, calculating really quickly, how do I answer that? Right? How do I, how do I answer that in a... In a, in a You know, unbelieving context. And I said, Well, and these are almost verbatim what I said. I said, Well, my faith gives me resources by which to understand and resolve those things, like redemption and forgiveness. I can know while I do need to take ownership for my sin, I need to confess my sin and repent of my sin, I know that I'm forgiven. I don't have to go down the rabbit hole because I know that I'm free. Now, I didn't say all of that last part, but providence is one of those. If you can't see your past through the redemptive light of God was good in that moment, then chances are you're going to get bitter and angry and probably resent the Lord himself. I look back, and I know many of you can do the same. I look back at some of my biggest blunders And while I am required to take ownership for my blunders and confess them and repent of them and where I can make restoration for them, I have learned more about the grace of God realizing how much of a sinner I truly am, how needy I am through those events. On the flip side, I've learned how hard it is and difficult it is to forgive sometimes. And yet experiencing the humility of forgiveness. So I look, I can't in every, in, in every you know, circumstance say, well, this worked out for good. So, I mean, life from our side, it looks like things are sloppy. <laughs> out of order. But not from God's perspective. All things. All things work together for the good, the eternal good of God's people. Do you believe that? Because I tell you, there's more healing that can come from your past by just camping here and saying, Lord, help me to understand this. Even if you don't understand what the good is, it's there. It reminds me of uh, one of the most famous statements by Joseph, right? End of Genesis, Joseph was one of the youngest of the brothers of the 12. You know, the 12 tribes of Israel come from the 12 brothers and one of the youngest, and he was smart, and he was given visions, and they were jealous, and so they, they conspired against him, threw him into a pit, and then they sold him off to slavery, thought he was, was done. it's massive evil. And yet through that event, he ended up down in Egypt where he became the savior of his own people. And at the end of his life, he was able to see things correctly. He was able to say, you know, this is Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me. He's not letting them off the hook. This was, it was evil, but God in the same action meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That is what this truth can do and why you can be assured God has orchestrated every piece of your life for the greatest possible outcome. Now, if he's done that, are you secure? Yeah. Yeah. Last and final truth, God's purpose. Like, so what is all this working towards? Like, what is God going to finally do? Now, admittedly, there are some words in here that might be problematic for some. For me, they're of great comfort. But God's purpose, this is point three, God's purpose that he will bring his work in our lives to final conclusion, and and he tells us what that is. He says, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew, to foreknow, to know things ahead of time. There's more to it than that. To know something ahead of time, like well, I know that the Giants are going to beat the Dodgers or something like that. Hopefully, Um, that's just to know something ahead of time. In the in the biblical use of the word know, it most most often includes also the idea of intimacy and love. So, for example, to give you an awkward example, Genesis chapter four, verse one, it says, "Adam knew Eve, and she conceived." Now, do I need to draw out for you folks like what the no in that passage means? Because she got pregnant, okay? When Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, he's not saying I just want to know about him, like you want to know about geometry. No, I want to be close to him. I want to fellowship with him. I want to love him. So when we read for no, it's not just that God knew ahead of time. It's like for those whom he foreknew in a loving sense, Or, as um, John Murray, a great theologian from the past, comments, he says, Whom he foreknew, he's quoting Romans 8, 29, is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. Listen, God's work in your life began, because he follows it up with predestination, it began before you were born. Not just that. God's work in your life predated the lighting of the first star, the first first beam of light. You were his. He foreknew, he foreloved. He says, that guy's going to be mine. Now, this doctrine of foreknowing or foreloving, which is then predestining or to choose ahead of time, was never meant to exclude or create pride. Actually, it was meant to humble because it means that you're here Because of him, not because of you. You're saved because of him, not because of you. It not only humbles, it secures. If he chose you from the foundation of the universe, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, and you aren't going anywhere, you're his forever. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. To what end? Well, to be conformed to the very image of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the final? Like, God is creating for himself, through his son, by the spirit, an entire civilization of people who one day will be resurrected and reflect the perfections of Jesus. I cannot imagine what that's like, much less experiencing that. Imagine not struggling with impatience anymore, anger anymore, disappointment anymore, frustration anymore. Jesus was the perfect man. Always loving, always truthful always faithful, never faltering. That's where we're all going to be. And someday we're going to arrive. Imagine, we talk about, you know, keep trying to make progress, not going to arrive, not in this life, but we are going to arrive. You are going to be conformed to the beautiful, glorious image of Jesus Christ, who is the beautiful radiance of the glory of God himself, will be beyond what we were originally created to be. So that is the, the purpose And then he, so again, he foreloved, he chose you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And then he follows it up with verse 30 with this this list, this what they call the golden chain um, of things that God has done. And notice, he is the subject of all of these verbs. We have no part in this. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called Let me stop there for a second. Called. When we think of call, we think of something that may or may not be received. So you call somebody up and say, hey, I got an open evening tonight. It's Friday. Do you want to come over for a barbecue? Nah, not really interested or yeah. That's not the idea of what God did when he called. It's more along the lines of when Jesus called out for Lazarus to rise from the dead. It's a call. It's a word that comes with performative power. It causes What it calls. So, you protested, then he called you to life. When you heard the gospel, he called you, you responded in faith, and as a result of that, continuing on in this unbroken chain, whom he justified, that is, he declared you righteous with the righteousness of Jesus, and whom he justified, he also glorified. And notice that last one speaks to the future, but is in the past tense. We would expect it to be, will be glorified, but it doesn't. It's as if it's already done. That's exactly the point. In God's mind, this process is already done because it's that certain and that sure. So let's just put this together. I don't believe that that God our Father would have us live in constant insecurity. Reasons. The Spirit's pushing on the tailgate and praying for you every day. Two, God has providentially ordered all of history for your eternal good. And finally, he's going to bring it to completion. What, who he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. So we, unlike my friend Mark, can be fully and completely confident that what God started He will finish. If your heart is convinced of that, you know what? You're going to have an increased sense of joy, confidence, freedom. You're not going to constantly feel like you're walking around God on eggshells because you know he's got you. This has a huge impact on how you live and how you feel and your affections and the way you live out your Christianity. So, church, I pray you believe this, that you are secure in the love of your Father, because of what he has done. Amen? Amen. Lord, I thank you for um, this word. You know I need it every bit as much as those who are gathered here. We pray that you would just deeply root our faith in your work, in your love, in your truth, in your promises, and we look forward today in which that final word, glorified, takes place. We cannot wait when The groaning is no more. The decay is no more. And we receive the hope that can never, never dissipate. Bless us, Lord, in your name, by the power of your spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.